Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 201. Today is Sunday, the 26th of June, 2016, and this interview, which was recorded last week at the Gen 2016 Summit, is with Siobhan McHugh, one of the world's premier experts on podcasting. Siobhan is also an oral historian and author of six books, including the award-winning The Snowy, The People Behind the Power. In this podcast, we discuss Siobhan's favorite podcasts, why podcasting is such a powerful tool, what makes for a great podcast, and much more. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset, that's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick and enjoy the show. So, Siobhan McHugh, an Irish lady I met, uh, I guess, last year at Gen 2015. Here we are again now in Vienna. <clears throat> you are podcast extraordinary Irish, based in Austria, Aust- Austria, Australia. And uh, tell us uh, what you do and what's your mindset, Siobhan? What I do, I'm uh, a radio documentary maker or podcast maker. I teach journalism at uh, university level, and I edit a journal called Radio Doc Review, which is in-depth critiques of world's best podcasts and audio features available online. Beautiful. And how would you describe your mindset, Siobhan? My mindset? Oh, of course, that's what you do. It is. My mindset is um, passionate, Mm -hmm. enthusiastic, impatient, Dare say a little anti-establishment? And, yeah, <laughs> anti-establishment, which tr- seems to have translated through all the work I've done in my life into an interest in people on the margins, whoever that might be. I mean, I never had a set focus or a goal in that area, but when I review what I've done over the last three decades, right. it's always, uh, you know, people who are uh, other in some way. Uh-huh. It's funny how one, uh, after a certain time in our lives, we, you get to look back and we try to figure out what we're doing. Were we proactively, in anticipation, moving towards that, or then we write our own narrative afterwards? Yeah. I mean, it looks surprisingly coherent now, if I were to write my CV, but it was all completely spontaneous, a lot of serendipity, a lot of just following your nose and... and making the best of wherever you found yourself and jumping in with both feet and often rashly. I mean, I look back at things I took on, I think, what was I thinking? <laughs> but still, they, as, as, as Samuel Beckett says, you know, fail, fail again, fail better. I fail fast. Yeah. So um, tell us, Siobhan, how you got into this whole world of audio and podcasting. Was there a, a, a light bulb moment that sent this all off? It happened back in the 80s in Dublin and I'd always grown up loving storytelling and mm. Ireland is a very oral culture, That's everybody sure. is loquacious they love their stories uh, Yeah, and you have to fight hard, I was from a big family and you have to be able to articulate stories well in order to get a word in um, and then I think I, I had actually done science at university and got interested in writing and I realised I would never be a scientist when I started faking laboratory results in order to get to my job as a waitress by 6 (laughs) p.m. I knew I didn't quite cut it. And a job just came up as a producer with the local public broadcaster, RTE, and 
I only found out afterwards that there were something like 2,000 applicants and about nine people were taken on as cadet producers and I was lucky enough to be in that intake. And I think it was, you know, you can't really define what a producer does, especially at that level when you're just a wannabe producer, Mm -hmm. but it's having, being passionate about something, being able to communicate ideas and having a kind of a good blend of left and right brain so that you have to be able to be systematic and organize Mm. the material you gather but you have to be creative Mm. and have empathy Mm. with people and all of that Mm -hmm. and somehow or other they just decided I had it and I was thrown in the deep end and suddenly I was producing the breakfast show and a third of the nation were listening to um, what went out. RT is a great, great establishment. So you obviously have seen a lot of change in the world of radio, because that's what you started with, and then into podcasting. Let's say that podcasting is is a somewhat of a bastard word, or at least it's, it's not necessarily appreciated, it's certainly not understood by most people. And for the people who are swimming in the, in the fishbowl of podcasting, we all are excited about it. But from your perspective, do you see, how do you see it? Is, it? is it growing? Is it stagnant? Is it really going to break out? Or are we going to be, remain as the best-kept secret of, of uh, media? Well, a podcast, technically, in one sense, is just time-shifted audio. It's a package of audio, a show. Uh, sometimes it's shaped as a storytelling feature, sometimes it's just an interview format, sometimes it's just a panel discussion. But it's a piece of audio, a program that is available on the internet, and it is portable. So you're not chained to the live radio anymore. That That is one factor that has played in its favor. And But for me, and for a lot of like-minded people, podcast is really about really intimate storytelling and it's about crafted narrative or at the very least it's about authentic relationship with the host whoever the presenters of the podcast might be where they're speaking in a very intimate way to listeners in a one-to-one way that is highly seductive and makes you feel part of a community is that, is that because the vast majority of podcasting is being consumed individually with an ear, earphone so that it's almost directly into my brain? That's exactly right. And I actually did a survey of people who make audio for podcasting just in January. And everybody, every single 100%, I said, do you prefer to listen to podcasts alone or gave various? And every single person liked to listen alone. And so often then it will be through earbuds and this increases the feeling that the person, the the host is speaking directly to you and this again is a very monetizable factor. Advertisers are very into this and very intrigued by this because if you can get a host read ad, you've already got that trust factor that has been built with the listener and so it increases the impact of the ad. So that's the sort of monetizing end. But in terms of the relationship or the you know what's happening with podcasting that wasn't happening with radio I mean there was always good crafted radio sure. features out there you know we've been making them the shadow knows what evil lurks yeah well certainly since portable tape recorders came in in the 60s you know there's been a f- tradition of making great features um, but I think with podcasting the fact that there are no gatekeepers is amazing and the fact that we're liberated from any schedule. So mm-hmm. I used to make programs for 
an outlet and they would have to be either 30 minutes, 45 or 55, depending on who I was making them for. And so you had to artificially, in a way, stretch the narrative arc into that format. Whereas now it can be like a piece of string, which is great. You just work out what your themes are if you've got an episodic podcast, which is the way that, say, something like Serial obviously worked. And you can have something that's 18 minutes one week and 35 the next, and, but there's no flab. So it's perfect. So it increases, it optimizes in a way mm-hmm. the power mm-hmm. of the podcast. But you can't get past the fact that you need to know about audio as a medium in order to make a good podcast. So just as, I, you know, I am not a specialist in video so, or in photography. I don't really know much about composing an image. So I would not take great photographs. But with audio, I think a lot of people think, because it seems deceptively simple, mm-hmm. that it is easy, and actually it isn't. All right, so let's get into that then. What is it that needs to happen in order to make a good podcast? I mean, there's great podcasts and just already just good podcasts. Maybe we can start with that, and we'll try and get into great afterwards. Well, what makes a good podcast? I mean, I think... For my money, there are, there are three kinds of podcasts that relate particularly to journalism, for instance. I mean, you have these educational podcasts and all the rest of it. I'm mm-hmm. not really interested in those. So the one that I love the best is the crafted narrative storytelling. After that, you have this thing people are calling a chum cast, where two people will get in a studio and riff about a theme. And if there's chemistry between those two people, it can be great fun. Mm-hmm. It's great to sort of sure. do the dishes to, you know. Marketing over coffee. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then there's the interview format, tried and tested, and the, that can range from Terry Gross or uh, with Fresh Air, or it can be Mark Moran famously um, with What the Fuck, WTF, and he got Barack Obama in his garage, and it was a deeply revealing interview. I mean, Obama used the N-word and talked very openly about racism and about how he's changed as a president and he is now fearless. I had just read a 9,000 word profile in Vanity Fair on Obama and honestly while there was great info in the Vanity Fair profile Mm -hmm. I think I got a better insight into Obama the man in that one hour talking to Mark Mm -hmm. in his garage than I did from the other article. And presumably it wasn't necessarily in the words he was using but the manner in which he expressed himself. Well that's a huge part of audio so audio it's it's a direct you're, you're hearing the voice literally of the person And so you're hearing along with that all the meaning that's embedded in the sound. So tone, um, cadences, rhythms, pauses, hesitancy, little laughs, gulps if somebody's crying can be deeply affecting. And you're listening in real time. And what happens there is, I believe, you develop a kind of pact of intimacy If you can imagine just sitting down with a friend and having a long night of talking about something very personal, the intensity of that listening relationship is quite strong. And that starts to happen, even though this person is a complete stranger and it's secondhand. It feels that the the host is a conduit, Mm -hmm. but you are, as a listener, getting a direct contact with this speaker. And audio conveys emotion as a medium, I think, better than any other medium. And it's also related to the way people are consuming it. Yeah, um, it's a one-on-one relationship and somebody is speaking into your ear canal, so that's different. Mm-hmm. If you're listening off the radio, it's filling a room, it's, 
it's and, and they tended to speak differently. You know, broadcasters are trained right. to project, right. whereas with podcasting, typically, and it is American-driven. A lot of this stuff is happening first in America. Certainly, very Anglo. But uh, you will hear, say, take a podcast like Love and Radio, which is a storytelling with a twist. So they tend to go for kind of slightly weird stories, um, always intriguing, sometimes pushing the boundaries of morality in one way or another. Uh, Two guys, um, Brendan and Nick, and it will literally start, you'll press play, and it'll be, this guy was walking down the street and he suddenly couldn't believe it but he saw an old friend that he had known in school and the guy was walking into a bank with a gun and it'll just start like that and you're just completely into the story. yeah completely mm. hooked so there is no preamble there's no formality there's no this is the bbc it's right. now nine o'clock right. coming up we've got this and here's richard rudin with his latest report which is kind of a barrier right so these guys the host you can speak directly to your listener. Right. And that is a precious and a beautiful thing. Mm. So that's number one about a podcast. They, they take the intimacy of audio and they raise it to mm. the nth degree. Mm. But to do that well, you know, these guys are brilliant producers. So they're very closely mic'd, maybe. It's good sound. Mm. It's not sound like it's, you're in a phone box right. or, or whatever, or that it's like tinny and horrible. Intimacy has to come also from audio quality. Mm-hmm. And you need to have good editing. And mm. for my money, you need to get out of the studio. So oh. I love to do what I call um, thinking through my ears. So when I visit somewhere like uh, Vienna or Paris, um, I'm meandering with the microphone. And I'm listening through headphones as I go along the street. And I might hear something, you know, a busker playing in a tunnel. Mm-hmm. And it'll be some kind of French song. And it, it's just beautiful. It says... Paris, mm-hmm. and so I'll I'll get that. So you're capturing sound bites. I capture sound bites the way other people pick up uh, photographs. photographs mm-hmm. Yeah. So somebody called it, you know, you're like an acoustic flaneur. Mm-hmm. You know the way the old flaneurs used to sure. wander around looking for street, yeah. rare encounters and whatever. So that's what you're doing with audio, and you're painting little pictures mm-hmm. through sound, mm-hmm. and they function both to create pictures in your mind and to provide textural relief. Mm -hmm. So a good audio feature is put together with the same care as a good film by, Mm. think of your favorite director, and the work that goes into that, Mm. and the blend of forethought and creativity and serendipity and alchemy that brings it all together. That is the difference between a good feature, highly produced narrative audio feature, uh, and um, just kind of press go start talking right. and stop which is you know a very basic form of podcast. Right, so doing a podcast that has that kind of editing that kind of touch requires a lot of preparation a lot of work so the challenge at some level at, you know, in a, certainly in a non-mature market is monetizing that in such a way that it's worth it because in order to get to that kind of quality details and thinking about the accordion that you heard in the street of Paris that you want to add in you know, ahead of time, or where where did I put that thing? And you mean, did you tag it correctly? And finding it, putting it in, that all takes time. And so, how do you, you know, how do you find the the way to to measure or stop, if you will, the eternal ability to make better 
versus uh, the value you're trying to get out. Yeah. Well, usually there's a thing called a deadline, which <laughs> focuses the mind. Um, but I gather, so I have my own kind of um, library at the moment now, after years, of sound moments. Um, so I have, if I pass kids playing in a schoolyard, I will just stand and record that sound. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's perfectly legal. I'm in a public space. I'm, 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 you know, sound has traveled right. over outside the confines of the school. And, and amazingly, kids sound the same pretty well everywhere. Mm. You know, they, they mm. run, they squeal. You might hear a ball bouncing. Sure. And so when I then go and do an interview with somebody about what she, you know, growing up in a, a different world and how she, you know, she, the childhood was, was, was very happy... Um, and I just want to give it that added texture. I will just run that sound of playground under her voice, and mm-hmm. it immediately changes from something quite prosaic to something beautiful and mm-hmm. much more touching. Mm-hmm. And I will let that little bit of childhood screaming, mm-hmm. and it takes you as a listener back into the mindset of maybe a six-year-old mm-hmm. or when you were mm-hmm. seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And it's just doing that kind of stuff all the time whenever you can. I mean, I can pull that stuff out quite easily. You might use a neutral soundscape from, uh, you know, nature. Mm-hmm. Crows are quite wind. evocative. Or, yeah, bird song at evening or in the morning. Or Wind, wind is difficult mm-hmm. on audio. That's wind true. is the curse of audio. Right. That's true. I was thinking, actually, I was thinking about when I, I went out and got some uh, Swiss cows and their bells. Lovely. Yeah. Some things are just, just make beautiful sound. Or, uh, you know, I went down a mile underground into a mine. And the, the, the incredible quiet in a timber-stoping mine. And then a layer up, there's all the machinery. And as you walk from one scene into the other, the listener can feel, you know, with you, the difference. Uh, so you just have to basically do this thinking through your ears. So I'm, I'm going to start um, training some investigative journalists back in Sydney or training, orientating them towards how to... Uh, work, prepare something for a podcast Mm -hmm. and these guys have spent years doing brilliant work as investigative print journalists but what I want them to to do is observe basic things so for instance when you're interviewing you have to if we were doing this for a podcast we'd we'd look for a quiet neutral environment because it would be too hard to edit out the background noise Um, you these, when, when somebody interviews for the first time, they often make the rookie mistake of going, uh-huh, 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 all the way through. And then you can't get that out of the tape. And often you want to just have the person's voice as a standalone. You need to be ruthless when you get to somebody's house. I mean, I, I'm like an SAS person. You know, I come in and I suss out the place and there might be a fridge sounding like a jet engine every half an hour in the corner. And there might be air con making a rumble fluorescent lights so I go around more or less turning things off get rid of the teenage kid who's about to play the guitar in the next bedroom and you know banish spouses or people who will kind of barking dogs yeah yeah people clattering around the kitchen and there's always somebody wanting to use a whippersnipper you know in the next and I've, I've I, I just go out so you intervene you get a nice quiet environment and then you just do what I call aerobic listening I mean you're doing it you, you know the intensity with which you listen and you make the eye contact and you're actually sort of sending back this message of validation to somebody which encourages them to keep speaking and to get quite open and revelatory um, and it's, it's different from a conversation 
One of the things I, I've felt over time is that an interview is, was about asking questions. And what I've learned, and for people who have been listening to this since the beginning for me, probably recognize that sometimes I just comment and then the other person riffs off the comment. So it's not like, so what do you think of? And then they answer, answer the question. It's like a question and answer. Sometimes conversations are really just, oh, and so it was really sunny. And then the other person, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an interview can have so many purposes. And sometimes the ones I like are where you're facilitating reflection by somebody else at a level where a trust has been established so they are prepared to open up a bit. I mean, there are contestative interviews mm-hmm. of politicians. There are performative interviews mm-hmm. where you go to a writers' festival and you've got somebody, you know, sitting there in front of two thousand people. And I mean, I would hate to have to do that job. I have done it once or twice, um, but there has to be a bit of hitting the, the ball back over the the, the the net on both sides. And in a way, there's a bit of showing off going on and whatever. But the kind of interviews I love are the ones where you're just more like an oral history type thing, where you're just sort of saying, well, what, tell me a bit more about, yeah, what you said, you know, how did you get started in this? Um, and let them direct the conversation. Right. In a way. All right, so speaking of oral histories, um, you who are a historian, you've, you've published, I think, six books. Uh, tell us about your latest project. You told me a little bit about it um, down in Australia. Okay, so I'm looking at, with a team of historians and academics, I'm looking at the way that Aboriginal art, Australian Aboriginal Indigenous art, is produced and the various kind of relationships that affect how that art is produced. So obviously there's the Indigenous artists, number one, who create this amazingly beautiful work, but... The, the sort of art that they make and the success with which it is received in the market depends a lot on other forces. So there are these things called art centres in Australia who are, which are quite unique and they're kind of set up by the government to be seeding centres to as, as economic focuses, if you like, for a small community. But they're run by white people usually who are usually well-disposed and respectful of Aboriginal culture. But those white art centre coordinators in turn have to deal with the dealers, the big sellers in Sydney or Melbourne or Berlin or New York or wherever. And so it's really interesting. The dealers range from people who also care about Aboriginal art to complete carpetbaggers and, in the worst-case scenario, swindlers, you know, Mm -hmm. people who will go in and in the old days they would just come in under cover of dark yeah and hand out canvases and you know paint and give somebody a a tiny bit of cash 200 bucks and head off with the paintings and sell them for thousands of bucks overseas and labeled as aboriginal art yeah yeah and but the thing about aboriginal art and it's something that is so deeply tied up with reconciliation and racism in australia Mm -hmm. which is an ongoing curse uh, of australia that has been swept under the carpet for, for centuries um, the thing about it is and I'm only beginning to get a glimmer of understanding the Aboriginal the, the art the, the aesthetics of the paintings that these guys paint are actually a form of sacred knowledge that they're rendering in a visual format as a, as, as a claim that they are staking 
to their ownership of the land. They've talked about it to me as though it's the title deeds of their land. So if they can't keep sort of putting down these patterns, which are code for, you know, how, when the river will run and, and you know, when the, this crocodile in the old dreaming time came out of the lagoon or whatever, and they own these secret stories and they are demonstrating through these designs that they, uh, these have been passed on to them and that the guy in the neighbouring tribe has no right to be there on this land. And they are a form of political advocacy as well. They've been used, there was a bark petition brought in the 1960s to the Australian Parliament and it sits beside the Magna Carta in Canberra. It's extraordinary. But it's not then, I thought, well, maybe this art then is just sort of, um, there's no creativity in it because they just have to do whatever the design says they have to do. But that was a really naive idea I had. And in fact, by having spent time out in the bush, like miles, like, you know, down a dirt track in a place with no Wi-Fi and no, no, no sort of mobile phone range, and I'm sitting out with these guys by the river, which is their dreaming or their song line. And there's a crocodile in that river, and I'm very conscious that we're very close right. to the bank because a woman has just been taken a, a week ago. Right. And then when we're, when we're sitting there, this man walks past with a hunting spear about two meters long over his shoulder, and behind him, he's just wearing board shorts, and behind him, his wife and a little kid and a dog, and they are heading out to hunt barramundi, which is a beautiful local fish, as they have done for centuries. Mm. It was astonishing. A moment in time. It was, it was. And, and, and you know, I'm not trying to sort of over-romanticize things because it's hard for people in those communities. And, you know, to get the paintings into the art center, these artists were telling me it can cost 700 or $800 for a bush taxi, even though they're only like four hours down a dirt track from, inverted commas, civilization. But there's no public transport. So it's, 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 it's really interesting. But what I'm trying to do, I suppose, through audio is I've got all the lovely sounds of cutting the bark to make the paintings. I've got the sounds of, you know, the people, the kids playing in those communities, of ceremony, because they're always doing ceremony, you know, funerals, initiations, various other types of ceremonies. And... Mostly, I've got the voices. And so the voices, are, uh, what language are they speaking in? Well, they're speaking um, in Yolnu, which is Y-O-L-G-N-U. That's the, the, the group of people. There's about 3,000 people of the Yolnu nation. And it's called Yolnu Mata, is the language. And all the Yolnu people are either one of two binaries. They're either Jua or Yiricha, and one side has to marry the other. This very complex kinship things. And the language is rather beautiful. But for them, you know, there might be another two Aboriginal languages they speak, and English might be their fourth language. So, yes, there was a bit of a struggle to get past that. And you're, you're, you're voiceovering to, for, into English? Oh, no, they've, they've been... These guys, these particular artists, some of them I will have to use voiceover, but these particular guys, um, lovely two guys, Garrowin and, and Goinaby, um going to be a kind of a rock star guy he's got a very cool sort of happy sense of humor and he does these amazing things with found materials because the lord d determines that they can only use materials on the land from the land and that used to be bark paintings but now he's extended that to mean things that white folk chuck away like 
discarded PVC or rubber, and he, he does amazing things with building materials. So, Siobhan, you, you know, we're talking about an audio format, and you're, and you're talking about art, visible, visi- you know, let's say visible art. Of course, podcasting can be an art. At some level, do you not feel stru- frustrated not to be able to take photographs of that, the guy walking with the fish, you know, the, the spear in the background? Look, certainly when the podcast, and it will be a documentary and a podcast, goes to air, there will be a photo gallery of the art. because so you do capturing want, audio. Yeah, the, the metadata well. is, 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 is going to be I there. See. But for that moment with the guy, nobody could capture it, and I might get to talk about it in the podcast. Right. But I think it actually, it's up to you. We visualize uh, you, it. Yeah, you visualize yeah. it. It's the theater of the mind stuff. I mean, in a way, a, a picture of it might look mundane. You wouldn't right. capture the magic of it. It was right. a magical moment. Just a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's so, so true. It's like, you know, there's, you see a sunset and you try to take a photograph. Of course, it never comes out like, you, like the moment you're there because you're somebody with somebody and it's that which makes it special. So listen, uh, Siobhan, I, just so we get to the end here, I wanted to talk about, so we're doing podcasting, we've talked about how to make good post- podcasting, make the right narratives. Um, couple, two more questions. One is, can you name uh, another one or two podcasts that you would like to recommend, give a shout out to? And then the second question would be, once you've done the podcasts, how, how to make them visible? I mean, or at least, you know, listen to. Because one of the challenges is that the podcasting is still a little bit, I should say, in its infancy. And it's not quite as easy for discovery, or at least not quite as obvious to be, be discovered as one might hope. Okay, well, there's so many good podcasts out there. I mean, you look, the classic ones where they all started were shows like Radio Lab from WYNC in, in New York, and it's still a great podcast. It's ostensibly... A show about curiosity is how they describe it. And it's a way of humanizing stories that are often related to science. But it's science that is captivating and intriguing. There's nothing scary about it. And it's wonderful. Um, Earshot is um, a series of different stories from Australia that are always beautifully produced. And the range of content is amazing. I mean, they might be highly personal stories... Uh, there was a program called The Storm, actually, that uh, we reviewed on Radio Doc Review. And that was about a guy called Eric talking about how he'd been sort of ritually sexually abused as a child. But the thing that was different about this, because this is a ghastly topic we've been hearing a lot about, is that the woman who produced it, Kirsty, was his former partner and they had a child together and she had never known during their time together that you know this had happened to him and he only really talked to her because he trusted her there'd been a royal commission into this whole thing and he thought it would help him to talk about it but it had re-traumatized him so this was an incredible and we've done a critique of the ethics involved in dealing that there's like a 7,000 word article on Radio Doc Review about this but it's really compelling journalism and it was very sensitively handled it could have topped toppled into voyeurism as well because he is describing quite graphically what happened to him but I think it's because she's with him or we could have felt that he was it was too unbearable to listen to but because she was there as his supporter and also his confidant and we hear his mother as well who's Mm. prostrated with guilt that she didn't know for three decades that this had happened so it's very powerful personal storytelling is huge in podcasting and it is really a genre that's terrific. There's another series called Better Off Dead, which is about euthanasia. And there's a, in that series, 
And this is made by a guy called Andrew Denton, who's a genius. Um, He had his own television show for years in Australia, and he's a brilliant interviewer and a comedian. But here, he goes on a crusade of his own because his father died painfully, and he never wanted it to happen. uh, We don't have euthanasia in Australia. So it's a series of interviews with people who are planning their own death. Mm -hmm. And there's one called Liz's Story, and she's this vibrant woman in her 40s who has an, you know, in, a terminal bowel cancer. And she's got this Nembutal tablet. And she's trying to gauge the moment when she should take it. Mm. Will she be able to last till her son gets married? But if she leaves it too long, the thing in her stomach might grow so much that she won't be able to actually down, ingest it, ingest it and she'll be carted off to hospital. And she's sort of, there's a kind of a gallows humor about the way she talks. It's absolutely lovely. It's the most... Yes, it makes it makes you laugh and cry. You can't ask much more. Yeah, there's another podcast I was listening to, Sex, Money, and Death. There's another one. Oh, the yeah, same. Death, Money, and that, uh, Death, Money, Death, Sex, and Money. That's it. Yeah, that's Anna, Anna, Anna Sales in New York. And yes, they're good. They're they're they're, they're intimate sort of stories as well. There's one that I like with um, a journalist who talks about having two autistic sons, and she kind of very candidly and bravely says, more or less, if she'd known this was what was going to happen, she wouldn't have had kids. And that she still loves her sons right. very much, but she wouldn't have signed up for it. Right. So it's a, a real expression. So or, uh, let's just last, uh, se- last question, which is this notion of, of distributing. So you've got a podcast. Any ideas? What are, the, what are the best ways to get it distributed and get people to listen to it? You know, you've gone through all the work. You've made a beautiful podcast. How do you get it out? Well, I think the podcasting audience is very much about like-minded souls. So you have to find your kindred spirits out there. And the best way, obviously, then is to have it passed on through social media. There is a huge sort of um, a whole kind of um, sea of people who seem to be in in, in some way well disposed towards a podcasting ethos. Mm -hmm. They're kind of millennials. They're kind of hipster Mm -hmm. or post-hipster. They tend to be young. They have tended to be very white and given that this has originated a lot in America, a lot of them are young Americans. I mean, I'm reminded of the millennial audience that the Mike.com uh, is um, aiming at. I think that they would all, 98% of them would probably have listened to a podcast. One in, one in five of Americans has, but probably 98% of the millennials mm-hmm. would have. So I think you've got to find... I mean, Third Coast Audio is a community that has many thousands of people on its books. It's based in Chicago. It's been going since 2000. Um, There's a Facebook group called Podcast Away. There's... um, there's a group in the in the UK called In the Dark, and they have mass screenings, inverted commas, mm. of audio features. And there's that lovely thing, just like when you go to the cinema and there's a different sort of feeling or a concert when you're all watching some, somebody together. You all listen together, and so there's this lovely feeling in the room of a mood and an emotion mm. and being bonded. So... Um, I mean, obviously, iTunes and getting reviews, get your friends to review them, that's, that's another good way in. But uh, visibility seems to come in my network from people flicking things on and recommending things on social media. Look, it is a very imperfect science, and that is one of the main problems. There are issues about podcasting are distribution, dodgy metrics. Dodgy metrics. For sure. Yeah, and we're still experimenting with ways of monetizing, and that's what Sarah von Mosel will talk about in the panel today at Gen.
Great. Well, I look forward to that panel, Siobhan. Thanks for coming on the show. Great to have a, pod, a podcast about podcasting. Uh, how can people track you down and find you, Siobhan? Well, I'm at SiobhanMcHugh.org, or you can try Googling Radio Doc Review, and you'll find our recommendations for all the best podcasts and really deep, insightful analyses of these podcasts of what makes them so good. Right, so if you want to have any of these, they'll be in the show notes, all the links to all this, so you can follow Siobhan's advice and recommendations. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Minter. Great to see you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me tightly, slowly we would paint a lover's portrait with all your favorite shades.
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 